Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, your podcast online repository of all classical things. Is that what we are? That's what we are. Online repository. If you want to learn about the ancient classical world, listen to Classical Stuff You Should Know. And no other podcasts (laughs) on this topic. We will fight you. Um, Wow. No, we are three (laughs) dudes. We work at a classical Christian school in sunny, sunny Austin, Texas called Veritas Academy. And we like the classical world, the old ways of teaching, the, the classical pedagogy, and thinking about virtue and how one teaches virtue in the hearts and minds of students. That's what we do most of our day is to is contemplate that, think about that, and then try to implement that into the life of our school and hopefully into the life of our listeners and that you guys go and uh, um, hopefully if you're classical educators, you're thinking of the same things. Anyway, that's what we do here at Classical Stuff You Should Know. Summer edition. Is this like the spring break edition? Hannenberg's eating Cheez-Its. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm there's, picking up good vibrations. <laughs> there's uh, sun streaming in the window. Oh, that's true all it's the time in Texas. Is, oh, true all Today, the time. Actually, yeah. um, and uh, we are talking about Mr. Thomas Stearns. I'm wearing pres- swim trunks. D- AJ is wearing Thomas incredibly uncomfortable. He is he wearing swim very trunks. Yeah. Um, Thomas Stearns brought to us by Thomas Magby. I like this. Oh, that's my turn. Okay, it's your so, turn. Um, okay, so we are going to be talking about T.S. Eliot again today. Why are we talking about T.S. Eliot again? Okay, so we have done... It's always gone well in the past. We've done th- <laughs> two other episodes on T.S. Eliot. Um, so the first episode that... I think this is correct, so please, you'll tell me if I'm wrong. First time we talked about T.S. Eliot, I brought in a quote of his... Well, I guess C.S. Lewis quoted T.S. Eliot saying this funny thing about oh, yeah. how only modern poets can say whether poetry is good or not. That was T.S. Right. Eliot's position. And then C.S. Lewis disagreed with T.S. Eliot. And then we sat here and we said, we also disagreed with T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Okay. Take that. Yeah. So we, Elliot. you know, so we dunked on T.S. Eliot. Okay. So then put him in his Our second time talking about T.S. Eliot. Thomas, you're spending way too much time with. We're hanging out with teenagers way too much. Well, I'm about to use that phrase again. So please, if please react the same way. Okay. So the second time we talked about T.S. Eliot, we read the wasteland and then we talked about how it was obtuse and hard to read. And so we dunked on T.S. Eliot again. There. Okay. Thank you. Good. That was good. Thank you. Much appreciated. So, um, I, I, I think that, um, I have been somewhat uncharitable toward this T.S. Eliot fellow. And so I wanted to do another episode wherein we talk about like somewhat good things about this fellow. Hmm. So, uh, uh, again, uh, yeah. Anyway, so you've been uncharitable. Yes. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have said, I brought the quote, I brought the C.S. Lewis thing and the quote of him, um, being wrong about modern poetry. And hmm. then also, uh, talking about his obtuseness. So um, we have focused somewhat on like limited times of his life. But so. he is that kind of guy that wears a cape unironically. I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> right, like, no, and like no, he's walks not. around. He's, uh, he's someone who probably like wears a cape and a, and a, and a walking you stick around like, London. You mean he's like early Hamlet? Yeah. And he's like, I, I wear know. black because I feel sad, mom. Yeah, you don't understand me. I have no idea what you all are talking about. I don't just look sad, I feel I sad. No, I think yeah. I remember reading that, like, he also would, um, like, like uh, um, wear makeup to make his face a lot paler. And people would be like, well, hello, hey there, Thomas, how are you doing? He would be like, you know, he would say something 
kind of arrogant. He would, you know, stir something like, I don't know, like the world is an immense ball of pain. <laughs> You'd be like, oh gosh. This is awesome. I love this. Um, so weren't you just grocery shopping? <laughs> Seriously. Like, I, think, I think you're okay. So yes, some of us will, some of this will be to talk about the goofiness of, not the goofiness, the, some of we will reaffirm some things we've said, especially in regards to the wasteland, but hopefully zoom out a little bit to look at the entirety of T.S. Eliot's life uh, so as to not focus exclusively on, you know, again, one work or one quote um, mm-hmm. about the guy. So that's the the target for today. So, uh, Graham, you introduced him this way. I didn't know that his first name was Thomas. So maybe this is really my uh, I, I knew it for today. I found this out probably a month or two ago. Anyway, Thomas Stearns Elliot is the guy's name. T.S. Elliot, uh, born September, 1888. Does anyone know where he was born? St. Louis, Missouri. Isn't that something? I never think of him was as like, really? Yeah, yeah, he was. I always thought T.S. Elliot was a London man. No. Well, he was again, one of those people that went to England and like dropped his American yes. Midwest accent to be, to pretend well, to be British. Did he, he really? He's like the original Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Well, it's hard to, it's, well, well, shots well, fired. Wow. It's probably hard to be a poet, poet if you're like, the world's a man's ball of pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, like no one's going to take yeah. it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, is that your... Inter- <laughs> that's him as a child? This good. is all I know of the Midwest. Um, but in, so, so I donned a cape, uh-huh. and I said goodbye to my pigs. Uh, oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. So Neither of us have ever been to Missouri. <laughs> yeah, we don't understand. <laughs> We're offending all of our Missouri listenership right now. I'm sure you guys are all great. So, yeah. Civil We're talking about the people like down the street from you. We're not talking about you. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> Graham, sorry, I don't know. So, so yes, he yes eventually would move to London. Yes, eventually, I don't know about the accent, but I guess yes, the accent. Like having heard recordings of him, but he also got rid of his American citizenship. He um, he Did he, just, really? he became a London citizen uh, after moving there. It's called England. I'm, an England. What did I just say? London. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. In England. Sorry. I was like, why, you, why are you I guess so. me? Citizen of the world, my man. Okay, so this actually was. So Huxley, who we talked about two episodes ago, uh, in a weird way, tried to follow the opposite path. So he uh, Huxley, born in England, tried to move to the United States and become a U.S. citizen, but was denied that. So darn right he was. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so here, you just uh, one of those funny things of two British. Of they, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because he wouldn't. Um, he re- uh, refused um, to be enlisted. He refused. Oh, to, really? Uh, yeah. He was re- the draft. Yeah, did it. yeah. He refused oh. to uh, like be a part of an American war. Wait, how did I make it in? Did you You're cute? Yeah, it must have been That's that. Your your charming personality. So anyway, it's just one of those funny things where they were born around the same time. They traveled in similar circles. Uh, so there's a, a group of writers around that time, um, and they are called the Bloomsbury Group or the Bloomsbury Set. And if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, neither Elliot or Huxley were like full members of that Bloomsbury group or Bloomsbury set, but they both kind of like knew those group of writers. Most famously that's Virginia Woolf's like mm, group mm-hmm. of people. Do we have a group? Uh, yes. Like our classical educators around this era. Are we part of a group? Do we have a name? I feel like we would have to like be writing and reading our writing to each we other. We are producing a podcast. Ah, my sorry. Friend. I apologize. Yes. Which is, just as good? No. Question yeah. mark? Again, yeah. not, not true. The same quality of prose nope, flows not. from our mouths nope, still that was flowing from nope. Nope, nope, nope. The Bloomsbury group. Bloomsbury, you were so close. Yeah. Um, should we come up with a name for ourselves? I feel like that is a burden on our fans. Oh, oh <laughs> wow. Okay. I guess that's one way beefcakes. to Beefcakes. So, so all it. two of you out <laughs> there. Nailed it. Yeah, beefcakes. That's what it is. Yeah, we got more than that. We're the beefcakes. So, nice try. Okay. So I don't think I've said it. <laughs> What did you just say? Beefcakes are the we're name the of our... We're no, we're the, the, no, we're the Alpha Double Plus. It's like an 80s. Alpha Double Plus. like the bad guys in an 80s like, kung fu movie. 
No, we're the alpha double pluses. We're going to go back to our brave new world. <laughs> oh, that's me. No, I like this. <laughs> makes me sad. No, we're the top tier, the man. double plus beefcakes. How about oh, that? No. Wolf. It's not. He, anyway. I feel like the alpha. A beef, name by beef, committee. <laughs> I feel like yeah. the alpha beefcakes is like a subreddit that you don't want to be involved <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, you Seriously. do not want to go there. Yeah. I don't think there are any subreddits that I really like want to be a part of. Oh, oh there's like some sweet nature photography ones. There, really? Yeah. <laughs> I just haven't spent enough time on Reddit. Good talk. Okay, so... <laughs> I Donald's in your holding in something. I there are see. some sweet nature photographers. <laughs> I love it. Is that just right. super nerdy that I, I bet. just no, out myself? Well, right, and there's going. also like, can you imagine anyone else other than AJ saying that sentence? Like, no, yeah, exactly. I cannot. That's beautiful that's trees out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there are. Absolutely. Trees okay. and bees. Hey, that's me. me. Okay. Um, so, yes. Born in... We just said this. Born in Missouri. So, that's just like an interesting thing that... Uh, Again, I tend to think that he's a uh, from England as well. Okay, so what is so if we are tracking through the life of T.S. Eliot, um, I'm going to focus mainly on his works. If you want to read a biography of him, go crazy. Um, so the Wasteland. Uh, oh, actually, the Wasteland is not his first like major work. Uh, a work comes before that. Um, the the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't think we've talked about it on here, Mm-mm. but in us making jokes about T.S. Eliot being really goofy. Um, uh, recently, uh, we've, my wife and I've been moving into a new house and, um, which means we've been like unearthing all of our old stuff. And so one of the things I've unearthed is my old poetry binder from like middle school and high school. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, you know, it's a binder. Raise your hand if you want Thomas to bring that and read it on the air. Yeah. Two hands are up. Unfortunately, I'm not reading Overruled. my hand, so it's not going to happen. So, uh, I opened up the binder and 66%, my friend. Uh, well, that is not a passing score. So here we are. Okay. So on the, so open up the binder. You know, my beautiful poetry is on the right. And in the front, like the, the front little like uh, folder thing where you can put papers inside of it is a printed out copy from, it must be 15 years ago of Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So clearly the sign that this guy uh, is a horrible poet is that I, I <laughs> like his poetry. Yeah, is that I really <laughs> liked his poetry. Um, yeah. I have no notes written on it. I clearly have like just printed it off to look really cool. Uh, anyway, I was, a, I was a wonderful child. Chicks will love that. I yeah, have yeah, this yeah, in yeah. my mind. Really impressed with us. Yeah. So part of at the university of Texas, I think, I think this is still true. The coffee shop that's connected to their large library is called proof rocks. Proof rocks. Mm. Yeah. True. Yeah. Off of, um, this, this poem. So we used to visit it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's still there. I, rem- I remember, um, my first time going to UT was in high school and seeing that coffee shop and being like, this is the place for me. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, where's my you, cape? Yeah, I must yeah maybe, maybe I'm, did you, Elliot. did you hook them, Thomas? Did I hook the horns? Is that what you're asking? No. Hook whom is my question. Whom, who, whom is hooked? Um, who's, um, yeah, um, who's um, 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 hath been hooked, I oh, believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, hooked. Yeah. Um, what? Okay. <laughs> that's when, that's when you graduate, you get the, um, hooked um, sweatshirt. Um, <laughs> like we did it, everybody. We um, hooked them. Yeah. This is good. Um, it's kind of like a threatening thing, though, to like hook someone. It is. Yeah, like it's a longhorn, like goring. All someone. of the Texas yeah. colleges have threatening chants. I'm okay with that. Is like stab them with a spear. Yeah. Hook them, well. gig them, bear them, claw them. No, what's the what's the what's the sick them, sick them, sick them. Yeah. And then there's like shoot them, yeah, wreck them, that's wreck them. Isn't that wreck them? Yeah, yeah. There isn't like a hug them. There is and not a hug. Like, there is uh, not indeed. Be charitable towards them. Yeah. Let's educate them. And there are a bunch of UT stories about the, uh, the so, you know, UT, University of Texas actually sends a longhorn to the football field, which makes no sense. And uh, in, in there are stories. What's his name? Of, Beto? Beto? No, that's Beto. the guy running for the, yeah, president. You're close. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Same uh, person. <laughs> wait. Conspiracy. It's actually a longhorn. Yeah. Maybe. No, it's Bevo. Uh, oh, and Bevo, Bevo has like, uh, has killed other mascots before. So anyway, UT. Oh, that's 
awesome. Oh, kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. My question is, the mascot he killed person in a costume <laughs> we don't like to talk about that part of it but actual squirrel or person squirrel <laughs> who has a squirrel as their mascot that'd be embarrassing okay almost as embarrassing as having the love song of j alpha proof rock in your poetry binder in middle school hey segue okay so uh one of his uh, yeah early ma- uh, early major work uh, also um uh so then that's 1915 eventually the wasteland will be written in 1922 so we've already read the wasteland if you are interested in that you should go we and read the whole wasteland yeah, you can, and, and, and again like uh i always think it's like a better use of your time listener if you hear us quote things because like the thing we quote is more eloquent than any thought that we will have on this podcast okay so wasteland uh how ends up if you agree with that statement no, no way. Way. <laughs> oh we think we're better than t.s Eliot. that's okay great. my mouth drips gold okay proud of you all okay um so Mostly because of the grill that i have yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's actually a very serious medical condition yeah yeah you really it's need really to a problem. yeah it's, it's a very serious problem golden saliva you, you should not brag my about dentist that. was it, it will kill you out. one day yeah okay so the wasteland in reading the wasteland how would you describe the like feeling of that poem is this like a a like positive rah-rah no, it is a it is a poem of lostness and adriftness and and thirsty yeah. and it's you are down. He's lost in a sea of sadness yeah um swoosh cape what swoosh a swoosh cape that's like, like after you read it like a swoosh cape is appropriate swoosh. so yes it's a bummer poem this is a uh a line from it just to this is actually from the very end of it i believe so to kind of get that feeling of how the poem the feeling of how the poem feels again my eloquence is not on this podcast okay i sat upon the shore fishing with the arid plain behind me shall i at least set my lands in order london bridge is falling down falling down falling down i'm gonna do i was gonna do the translation um because i'm unpretentious so (laughs) (laughs) so uh, take that donald so london bridge is falling down falling down falling down what Graham just said in English is, and so I pray you by that virtue, which guides you to the top of the stair, be reminded in my time of pain. Oh, swallow, swallow. Do you want to say the next one? No. Uh, (laughs) Have I offended you? The Prince of Aquitaine at the abandoned tower. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Why then I'll fit you. Hieronimo's mad again. Dada, Dayadavam, Damyata, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. So it's a bummer. It's a bummer. I thought you were going to like uh, correct pronunciation, which would also be appropriate. No, but it, it in, and even in like in looking at the poem, Leviosa. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> What's that from? I never read those horrible books. No, sorry. Um, so even in like say chippingly, chippingly, my dear boy. What is happening? Okay, have, so, you, <laughs> have I what? Have you seen that? It's the what is it? Caesar, hail Caesar. Yeah. No, I've never seen it's that. Chippingly, chippingly, hail Caesar is a masterful. It's a Coen Brothers movie. Uh-huh. It was so good. Anyway. It's about the filming of. Uh, when, isn't it when Marlon Brando did Julius Caesar? Oh, is, is it? it? I have no idea. Probably, That's I mean, pretty uh, funny. There's a great version of it. Anyway. Yeah. Speaking of T.S. Eliot. So even in if you were to look at the poem on the page, it looks like the poem is almost falling apart by the end, the way the spacing is working, the way the lines are getting farther and farther apart. Um, so it's kind of this expression that uh, something has something has fallen, something has broken, something is like irreparably changed. It's a bummer of a poem. You should go listen to that episode to be bummed out. Okay, so he writes that. He then follows that up with a, a, a poem that's similar in tone, The Hollow Men, in 1925. Um, and it's just following in the same idea of, like, things are bad, things suck. Okay, so... It was a rough time. It was a rough... But this is... Okay, this is great. So it is actually a rough time. Um, 
Unless you like jazz music. <laughs> okay, that's the only thing that's good. But not only what, what makes it a rough time, there's like this angst among like these writers of like uh, things actually feel really bad. But the broader context is World War One, right? Mm-hmm. The broader context is is um, 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 this this great war that is that never really gets a. it just sort of ends and no one really knows how to deal with it. There's no, there's no great like burying the dead and saluting and everything sort of, we did this for the right reasons. It just kind of ends. And then people try to ignore it with like parties and drinking and the jazz age and, and and, like internet speculation. I mean, stock speculation. So, um, and I'm reading a, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer right now and they pronounce it Bonhoeffer. Is this, who's they? the audiobook the sorry okay so they're wrong oh, well, okay so um <laughs> so in the story they talk about world war one like dietrich's experience of world war one and they go into it with this optimism of mm-hmm. like war is this great noble yes. thing like we um these boys will get to show off um they get to like become men through this process they get to be heroic they get to come back with these awesome stories and instead what are shipped back are body bags it's it's a slaughter it's it's death upon death upon death yeah there's a there was a famous recruitment poster uh, which was a man sitting by a fire smoking his pipe and a little girl presumably his daughter like his his son and daughter sitting there saying like what did you do during the great war daddy and um and you can tell by the expression on his face that he didn't enlist and how shameful it would be. You need to tell your future generation that you fought for your country. So right. it was this idea that the war was, yeah, that it was this, your duty mm-hmm. uh, to do. Yeah. And I, you know, if I had prepared well, I would actually have more numbers with me. But there's also the strange thing in World War One where a higher percentage of the people going to war died. It was a more oh, yeah. lethal war mm-hmm. than historically because historically, like, you know, your commander or, so, or someone would die or... Um, it was more a war of attrition. Um, there weren't as many deaths or, you know, you'd get stabbed, which is not great, but, um, stabbing seal. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's, again, it's not like a gun shooting to kill. It's, it's just, it's different. So well, and we're, we're the world war one is when we moved away. Like we're not doing musket balls anymore, right? We're doing sure. the kind of rounds that mushroom inside you and explode. And yeah. well, that's, or that, that, so Graham likes to read that or has read that quote about how technology is going to be really awesome for us. Well, all that excitement about technology was put toward how can we make this stuff as lethal as possible? Yeah. Um, yeah. The and machine guns and yeah. the tactics and the tactics didn't catch up to like figure out how to deal with machine guns. Right. So. And so yeah, exactly. So it was the same tactics of like, you know, us on horse, but instead of that, it's a machine gun you're running toward. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it was horrendous. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so yeah, instead of five minutes reloading your weapon, it's instantaneous shot after shot after shot yeah Yeah. and and the musket's very funny in that the aim on it is horrible and so even if you're like directly aiming at someone it could just totally you know shoot off yeah the balls spun real bad and And so you kind of never know who you're actually going to hit uh and that changes when you get into um you know high high magazine fire so anyway so that's like what is surrounding elliot uh in writing the wasteland so there there are reasons it's a super bummer he's not the only one who follows in this vein of super bummer writing Again, this Bloomsbury group of which he was acquainted, but not necessarily a part of, um, is again, Virginia Woolf is, um, like most famously a part of this, um, I my list pulled up a second ago. Uh, John Maynard Keynes was involved in this, mm-hmm. which seems still crazy to me. Uh, Ian Forster, um, were also involved in this, but just the only thing to draw out in this group is that with the despair uh, surrounding them, um, many members of this group would go on to commit suicide, would go on to kill themselves. So Wolf obviously, uh, drowned herself, um, 
filling her coat with rocks and, and um, going into a river near her home. Uh, another member um, shot herself. Um, uh, Ezra Pound, who is involved in this group, would be put into a psychiatric hospital for 12 years, um, just not having any condition, like no condition other than like the over-focus on the sadness in the world. Um, so this sadness overcame many people in this group. So sadness around the world, these they're kind of bouncing it back and forth among themselves. So that's a bummer. And that's where the wasteland comes out of and hollow men. If you're into that. Okay. But T.S. Eliot's path does not follow that one. His life does not end in suicide. His life does not end in despair. Uh, what major life event happens after the wasteland? Does anyone know? Tis conversion, right? His conversion. What does he convert to? Is it Catholicism? Nah, Anglicanism. That's what's up. Okay. So we got another one. Okay. You can have them. <laughs> we can have them. Okay, great. You're not Catholic. What you, what's that mean? Okay. Anyway, so uh, T.S. Eliot converts in 1927. So again, Wasteland 1922. Hollow Men uh, is 1925. Conversion is 1927. And then after this point, there's just a marked change in his writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First off in his poetry, but then um, his, his like major, his commercial success uh, it came in playwriting uh, murder in the cathedral. Yeah. Is yeah, that, yeah. 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 Um, and that would come after this conversion. So, um, I read it. Uh, and I guess neither, neither have I, again, if I had come prepared, I would have done that. But it's on Thomas is it a, Beckett. Is it a mm-hmm. comedy? Is it fun? No, no, it's on no. Thomas Beckett, the mm-hmm. martyrdom and killing of Ooh. Thomas Beckett. Yeah. Um, by King Henry the second. I have to pick a play for this year. Yeah, you read it. I'm not high schools to be into this. No, you're doing, um, the Shakespeare version of star Wars, aren't you? I would love to do that. Oh. It might be too long. Oh, really? Just cut it down. It's so fun, though. Yeah. And think about the fun special effects we could do. Uh, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. So then we just solved your problem. Okay. So conversion, 1927. And then um, major works that come after that are Ash Wednesday, 1930, which is still not like a super, um, you know, like not happy, like over the moon poem. But again, very changed. But it's a Christian bummer. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. But even Ash that, Wednesday. But even that, like, the, uh, yes, there's sadness in the world, but like with a foundation um, of Christianity, like there's a meaning to that mm-hmm. sadness in the world. Okay. So he then follows that up uh, with uh, a series of poems, which are the, the four quartets, first of which is in 1936 and then later in 1942. So the only thing I'm trying to draw out here is that when the wasteland is pointed to as like, this is Eliot's thought on yeah. whatever it's like, that's his thought uh, in 1927. That's which I guess I should have also looked up how old he would have been. When he was uh, 39, so he's not super young. But anyway, there was a younger Eliot who was writing that poem. That's the only point I'm trying mm-hmm. to draw out here. Um, and then also to say that he was able to find a foundation in that time of misery, sadness, despair surrounding him. Um, and that for him was his faith. And that's what allowed him to, again, bounce off that low point of the wasteland and the hollow men that, like, there's no way you follow that direction and like still live a meaningful and fulfilled life. Yeah. Um, to see that like everything around you is falling apart. Um, it's, I mean, we mentioned it in the Elliot podcast or the, I think the wasteland podcast, but it's always amazed me that Tolkien and Lewis, both men who also fought in the war, mm-hmm. who also experienced the same event that all these, uh, all these other men experienced, leave it and have, have a place to put it in. Mm-hmm in the depravity of man or the, or the brokenness of the world and, but also trusting in, in, you know, the goodness of God. Whereas these, these other, you know, um, at the time seen as greater intellectual men, as opposed to writers of children's stories, you know, are, are un- completely sort of undone by this, undone by this thing. Yeah. And 
it, it also makes me think of your of the Ben Sass categories that like you need some way of understanding mm-hmm. the world around you and mm-hmm. what's happening around you. Uh, okay, so I guess we'll um, that was on nihilism and his response there. Um, another thing that I find helpful and interesting in um, T.S. Eliot is that he cares about the classics. He we know that he cares about the classics for the way that he makes references throughout. We saw in the wasteland. Um, it, it makes it somewhat frustrating to read because in coming across those references, we don't like, I didn't know what a lot of it meant. And so I just kind of kept going. And I think I said it on that episode that if Graham hadn't been reading it in his radio voice, I probably wouldn't have known like what was happening or how, ha- I don't even know if that's the right interpretation, but at least to have some way of understanding this, this poem was really helpful for me. So, a, a thing that Eliot would say about himself is that he was a classicist in literature, a royalist in politics and an Anglo Anglo Catholic in religion. So I thought that was, I liked that. Um, his incorporation of illusions, his incorporation of metaphor imagery uh, is not unique to him. He's not the only person who is making reference after reference after reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the beginning of the wasteland, he says that, do we call it a dedication? I forget what the word is. He calls him, he calls a, Ezra Pound, the, the like the grand craftsman, or it's mm-hmm. like it's like to the grand craftsman. Ezra Pound was very influential in helping the wasteland become the work that it would eventually be. But this is Ezra Pound doing, if not his version of the wasteland, something that he wanted to be the way. I don't know. I'll just read it because it's fun. Okay, so this is from Ezra Pound's The Cantos. Do you all do you all know anything about the Cantos? No. We talked about the Cantos before. Well, we talked about the Cantos in colloquially amongst ourselves. I yeah, read, amongst the Cantos ourselves. is yep. is is um uh yeah, just a poem that that Pound wrote that is um um indecipherable. I, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's that is the correct way of describing <laughs> it. Uh 116 sections. It is incomplete. It's uh it was written over the course of what's that? 50 years, 40 years. Um so he spent a lot of time on this and especially in his like waning last 12 mm-hmm. years, spent a lot of time on this. Uh, it is somewhat notable that if you pick it up, first off, it's, it's very long. So usually when you get it, you'll get like sections of it. There are certain like, um, there, there are some sections that are clearer and more cogent than others. And those are usually separated and you can just get those. If you get the whole thing, it's very long. And then there you'll get funny things like entire pages will just be like Chinese characters mm-hmm. or yes, Elliot will bring in languages in, in the wasteland, but, uh, Ezra pound will be again, like whole sections will be in German or like it's it, indecipherable is probably the best way of describing it. So this is a, a particularly fun, uh, quote from it to the end Four fat oxen. Uh, uh, can I say, I don't, I'm going to say this and hopefully you will make fun of me to the end Four fat oxen, having their arses white <gasps> and in general being tidied up to serve God under my window with stoles of Imperial purple with tassels and grooms before the caraccio on which the carrick six lion heads to receive the wax offerings. Thus arrives the gold eagles, the banners of the contrade and box of candles. Yeah, said the left front ox suddenly, but as they tied on his red front band, St. George to hokey pokey stands and the unicorn Nikio, Nikio, nay. That, I don't know how to say that word. The Sienese females get that way from the Salite and is from continual plugging uphill. One box marked 200 lira. Uh, alias serve God with candles with the polio and 17 banners. And when six men had hoisted up the big candle, a bit askew in the Carrick and the four ox had been finally wiped. They set off toward the Duomo. Time consumed one hour and 17 minutes. 
So we, uh, this is this is now my new definition of obtuse. Like I, I have no idea what's happening in here, and I don't think Pound wants us to know what's happening here. Like the, the, dude, the dude loves a spectacle. Yes, and he. He was a great fascist. That's actually a funny way. Uh, wait, so he was a fascist? He was. You say yeah. a great fascist. Well, know. because the, 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 the spectacle and yep. the, the pageantry and the robes and, yeah. oh, and yes, the whole yes, sort of so if, neo-paganism of the whole thing. So if he was in charge, we'd be looking at a military parade is what you're saying? Well, he, like he was, he loved, let's just say he loved Mussolini, right? He was a big, yes. yeah. And, the, and but that's what got him in trouble in the States. I get this part wrong. I forget if he was, was he going to be... Um, killed for treason i can't remember so anyway part one of his reasons for being in an institution for his 12 years is that that was as opposed to him being punished for being a fascist yeah so he was put into uh, and it was a tiny yeah. cell i think it was six like six six feet by six feet by six feet yeah um anyway uh it was, it was not a happy ending for him but like this is this is what elliot was influenced by like this difficulty of i don't know I don't want to say it's a waste, but it feels that way. There's like, an arrogance to yes. it. There's a, there's a, and then there's a pageantry to it. And yes. then there's, um, there's a, a sense of, I'm purposefully elevating myself from you, yes. you reader. Which Elliot was influenced by. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to draw too large a gap between the two because some piece of the wasteland is that, that again, um, Elliot wrote pages and pages of Wasteland and then Ezra Pound would just go through and cut out sections. So the entire, if you can look this up online, when you look at the, the manuscripts of it, essentially the first page, which was Elliot kind of laying the scene work of who are some characters, like what's, what's the action happening here? Elliot cuts the whole thing out and says, just go into, just go into the story, just go into the poem. Um, so Elliot is influenced by that with the wasteland, but again, the wasteland is not the only poem that Elliot writes. And that's, that's where I'm leading. That's where I'm getting to with all this. So I think there's a helpful way of bringing in illusions and imagery and metaphor. It can go too far. Um, and I think, I don't know, in Elliot realized that to the degree that he tones that down in his later works. You need to be charitable to, to your reader, reader mm-hmm. right? Um, only because you said that I wasn't going to read this. This is a, this is just a funny thing that, so the four quartets again, written between 1936 and 1942, it's, it's four poems. That's why it's the four quartets. Um, the third one opens with like, a just like, <laughs> I'll just read it. Um, um, I need to make sure I pronounce this correctly. Uh, salvages, that was, the dry salvages, presumably, and then he puts it in French. But he translates it. He tells you what that French word means by the title of this work. It's a small group of rocks with a beacon off the northeast coast of Cape Ann, Massachusetts. This The word of the poem is pronounced to rhyme with assuages, so it's salvages, the dry salvages. And then he defines one of his words later, groaner, a whistling bo- uh, bowie. So this is like incomprehensible to think that he would have given this to the wasteland or the hollow men, some sort of intro that says, this is what I'm talking about in this poem. Mm-hmm. Like he's growing in this charity as he gets older and older to the reader. Mm-hmm. This is just, mm-hmm. it's only one point, but it's something that like really struck me of like, mm-hmm. we would never have seen something like this in his earlier work. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that's unique to him as a, as a poetic author. There are other authors who, as they grow, they're like, man, I have no idea what I was talking about earlier. I, I, and they tend to be more charitable to readers. I'm thinking of Bob Dylan. Mm. Bob Dylan, when he looks at some of his old songs, he's like, man, I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> when I was young. I try to make more sense now. And uh, didn't the guy who wrote Howl say the same thing? Ginsburg? Yeah, Ginsburg. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I don't know what an angel-headed hipster is. That doesn't make no sense. <laughs> but now I would write it different, but I wrote it that way then. 
So maybe it's maybe it's just that the the impertinence of youth, you you end up being a little more fragmented and not as clear to your reader. I don't mm. know. Never think about that. This, my, my early poetry certainly makes a lot less sense than my later poetry. Same. Or yeah, most of mine was just like I need to express this. Like this is so important. Gotta um, get out the feelings. Right. Yeah. yeah it was. It, I don't know. Yeah. I think there's that that like notion that what you're doing is capturing a a moment of feeling rather than expressing a clear idea mm-hmm. is is definitely a modern notion about poetry. Yeah. So I'll I'll just read a few quotes from this and we can talk about them as we go. So this is from the first of four poems. This is Burnt Norton. Uh, so what's another thing to throw in there? All four of these, he has this really interesting through line of trying to explore. I mean, it's, the question is kind of how does time work? How does the present, well, yeah. How does the present relate to the past and future? What is in the past and future? Um, and kind of what's the most important of those three? That's a thing. That's a theme he'll come back to in each of the four. Um, I don't think any of these quotes will draw that out, but it's just something that's interesting. So this is from the very end of this. So again, why am I reading this? I'm reading this to draw a contrast to what we've read of Elliot on the podcast before. So I almost don't see how this is the same uh, poet at this point. The detail of the pattern is movement as in the figure of the 10 stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. Timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. Okay. Is this a slightly pretentious paragraph? Sure, a little okay. bit. But far more comprehensible what, than, but, than but, the wasteland. But what is he like? What's Much he, more enjoyable. What's he saying? Like, what's his argument? Like, I, I, can you read it again? Yeah, happy to. I'm going to skip that first part desire itself. So I skipped the, fir- the first two lines I read before are the detail of the pattern is movement as in the figure of the 10 stairs that it's an image that he's repeated before. So that's unfair of me to bring it up here. Um, so desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving only the cause and end of movement timeless and undesiring except in the aspect of time caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. So desire is bad. Love is good. Love is the end of desire. Whereas desire is moving. Love is stable. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of what's going on? Desire will pull us to this thing of love. We don't want to stay in the movement. We want to get to the thing. Yeah. And desire in itself is not something you want, right? You want love. Totally. Yeah. I'm with it. Yeah. Um, so, Hey, I understood some T.S. Eliot, <laughs> but you guys. That's, that's the part that's like, well, that's crazy. Like ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And so this is, what's that? 20, it's 14 years later. And I don't know, like he is getting to, I don't know, a point. What am I trying to say? He's, he is conveying something that's like moving uh, and understandable at the same time. Yeah. So that's all I'm trying to make with that first point. Okay, good. Okay. So there's a four year gap between um, these two poems. Uh, I think I'll just read this one quote at the very end because I kind of love it. So there's a four year gap because during this time, Elliot is worried that he'll never write another poem again. It's almost, it's not writer's block. It's more that he's like lost the muse. He's like lost that ability to, tap into the words to like express himself through poetry. Uh, that's like, that's a writer thing too. The guy who wrote the infinite jest, what's his name? Foster Wallace. David Foster, David Foster Wallace. Wallace had the same thing right. after he wrote his big, you know, infinite jest, he, infinite jest. Uh, he was like, I can never do this. I can never oh, really? do it again. Oh no. Is that I, what led to his, I don't know if it was that one or a different one. He wrote the, what the pale King. No, the, 
Pale King, is that what it's called? He did write later, but I think he went under over like a crippling. Oh, sure did. Pale and King I think right that there. same thing happens to musical artists, right? They write their big first album, and that's why you have the sophomore slump. Is they're like, can I ever do this again? And then they have neuroses, and like when you have a famous work, you, it is hard to meet the expectations, even you know you place upon yourself. And I love that because there there wasn't an expectation with the first poem, right? Like no one knew who you were. You could kind of do whatever you want to. And now, and it could be building for ages, right? For your first album, there's songs you've written over your entire life for your second one. You got two years. Yeah. Right. And so he, I guess, so he, he kind of shifted away. So instead of focusing on poetry, this is more his playwright time. Uh, Murder in the cathedral came out around the same time as burnt Norton, but like that is what kept him busy was the playwriting. Um, So he, there was the distraction there, but there was like a sadness of like you're saying, AJ, not being able to write another poem. Like he's T.S. Eliot, the poet who's never going to be able to write again. And so he would, um, he would write he had to fold his cape and <laughs> into the drawer it went. and hand it back. Is that how it <laughs> good night? My sweet love. Yeah. So he, to overcome this, this writer's block or to over, I hope you, I think you all might laugh at this. Okay. I, I didn't think this was funny until here we are. Thomas, we are, serious yeah. scholars Do you remember that time we, we giggled about the word duty for three episodes straight <laughs> i tried that? really hard earlier when you guys were talking about your duty to go to war uh-huh. i was like this is war i can't duty. laugh <laughs> i can't laugh good for you okay so we've grown i did i didn't laugh yeah we've grown. much to my credit yeah. okay Virtue. so shoot so he wanted to overcome this writer's block he wanted to overcome this feeling of never being able to write a poem again and so he would practice writing a poem and the poem he chose to rewrite was uh, Burnt Norton. He chose to rewrite his own poem over and over again. Yeah, anyway, okay, so I thought it was just kind of like, I don't know if height of arrogance, it's not arrogant, but it's like, you could pick anything to write over and over again. You pick your own poem. I thought that was funny. Okay. So maybe, maybe the idea was to stay in his own voice. That's fair. That's totally fair. Right. If I rewrite Homer over and over again, my next poem is gonna sound like Homer. Which maybe that's a good thing. That's what Art of Manliness has a piece about how to improve your writing is to take the greats and to like write them out by longhand. There's, there's some ideas floating around in just in terms of writing instruction that when you're teaching students to really get better at writing, stop asking them to write essays in their own voice and start asking them to copy great sections of works, memorize great pieces of literature. And then, and then you'll see that, that those sorts of habits and forms end up coming in their writing. In fact, I think I see that we see that, as teachers of writing here is that you get students to memorize. We have students right. memorize sections of books and oh, there's, oh man, what was it? There was something I was reading the other day and the student used some anachronistic phrase that was like old and British, but they used it n- like sort of naturally in their writing. In the right way? Like, in the right oh, way. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I was just like, oh my goodness, like it's just, it's naturally come out of them because they've read so much Shakespeare or something like that mm-hmm. or so much um of these sort of uh, these older, older classic books. Well, it's, um, not an, it's not a silly idea. I mean, when you're when you're learning to paint, it is better sure. to yeah, you copy the masters. Try to copy the masters, and then, well, I mean, it does a lot of things for you. It means that you're you're trying to imitate the absolute best there is, and on top of that, it takes away the pressure of creation. Yeah. Right. Even if you screw it up, that doesn't mean you're an idiot. Right. It doesn't mean you're a bad painter. It just means that you have a little ways to go. You didn't have to invent it. I don't know. I. I'm trying to do the same thing with music currently, right? If I write a bad song, ah, it feels bad. But if I'm just trying to copy somebody else, it kind of takes that pressure away, the pressure of creativity. Mm-hmm. And you probably still learn the same skill you would have gotten from writing your own. Exactly. Right. I learn a lot of the same skills. In fact, I'm learning the skills that the greats have rather than whatever trash <laughs> well, I would have, put yeah. out, which it is pretty bad. That's funny. I, I didn't. So, Graham, your comment of like the students trying to use their, or no, 
you don't you don't want to lose the student's voice as one of you just said that and you kind of do like yeah in some in some sense i want to lose whenever i try and write and it comes off as shallow that's because i'm shallow and so i want to copy the writing of people who aren't shallow mm-hmm. right so i i can just write that out um by hand yeah. um so uh so this is from his second uh poem so um again he has four years of not being able to write poetry. And so his, um, the second one is East Coker. Um, these each are named after locations. Uh, and there's there's something about that where the wasteland is also a location name, but it's not real. There's not an actual wasteland that he's talking Mm -hmm. about. It's like a metaphorical wasteland, but each of these four poems have a physical location Mm -hmm. to them. And there's something that is more embodied in the poem that I'll just read it because I think with that background, you'll, it will draw out more of what he's saying here. This is the very end of East Coker, the second of the four quartets. So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, the years between the two great wars. He has it in French there, but I'm translating it. Trying to learn to use words and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. And so each venture is a new beginning arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment, always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling undisciplined squads of emotions and what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate, but there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unproprietous, but perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. That's what wraps up that section. So what... I love that. Uh, isn't that... So that's great. What, what I, well, what I think he is, he is talking about, that struggle to write again, mm-hmm. um, that the skills he have only help him fight a war he's already fought, and so his responsibility isn't the success of that poem. Um, he, and again, he ends it with, for us, there's only the trying, the rest is not our business. His job is to try again and again with the tools he has. Um, as imperfect as those tools are. Yeah. And, and again, the success comes outside of that. What you got? You seem like you're like really thinking about it. No, I was just thinking like, just thinking about that idea of, of copying and, um, the difference, like you want to like copy the greats so you can emulate the greats, but also, um, finding your own voice in there. We actually had an email about this and I promise we talk about it at some point. I'm thinking of making a whole episode, but we had talked a little while ago about, um, um, I think it was during your, your heroes podcast where Mm -hmm. we were talking about, should we emulate everything about Hector? And the question that came in was, if we had said, oh, we should take little bits of hero, we should take the best parts of heroes, or we should be looking at the heroes and asking ourselves if they are conforming to the ideal type or not. And the question a listener emailed in was, if you do that, do you not just end up losing yourself? And then you sort of lost your identity. Um, at what point are you just like an amalgamation of all these borrowed identities versus your true, your true self? And I know this isn't the conversation we're having right now, but I was just thinking that was just reminded of, of me. That, that just I, reminded did I respond me. to that? I feel like I did. No, I told him, I told the, the, uh, the, the person on the email that, uh, we would have, we would talk about it on, on a podcast oh. episode. Maybe you gave an, a longer email response. Oh, I can't no. remember. I, I certainly have thoughts about it. 
Yeah. Uh, my thought is that you don't have your own personality and there is nothing new under the sun. Every creative thing is an amalgamation of, or an, an amalgam of things that have come before, right? There is... I, I say we table the discussion and yeah. have it and, mm-hmm. and hash it out at some point and not hijack poor Megby's well, this discussion of Elliot, which I is good. That's kind of you. I uh, I was planning on just um, wrapping things up right about there and ending with this mm, question because okay. I saw your email response. Um, I wanted to, I'll give some piece of, uh, well, okay, let me just to wrap up sure. on the T.S. Eliot sec- uh, segment of it. Um, uh, this has been an attempt at like a more charitable reading of Eliot broadly. And I have found his later poetry much more helpful, engaging um, uh, than the Wasteland is at first blush. Because mm-hmm. again, uh, the Wasteland is like not made to be like a friendly, approachable poem because it's not a friendly or approachable picture. Hmm. But that's not to say that uh, you listener would not enjoy the four quartets, especially, or uh, perhaps even Ash Wednesday. So I would just uh, encourage um, further reading on him. I think there's a reason that Eliot gets all this praise as a great 20th century uh, poet. And I think that like my portrayal of him as he has a bad opinion on poets or he's too obtuse is not fair to the man himself. So. Yeah, but it was probably fair to young out to younger Elliot. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 That, yeah that later stuff was really enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. It's probably to. the same with us. Like yes. these podcasts we're doing right now are arrogant <laughs> and obtuse, uh-huh. but our older pod, when we're, yeah, yeah. in 20 years, yeah. when we are charitable, older, when we define our terms, when we slow down a little bit, when we're, little... why'd you look at me when you said that? <laughs> <laughs> why was I getting your eyes? Oh <laughs> uh, well, yes. And we'll, we'll be a little more, um, accessible that's good one day one day will be that okay so i'm just joking on the mimetic teaching on having heroes i, I so can i read sure i'll just read the whole question um uh, just to make sure i get it right towards the middle of the episode on mimetic teaching you all were discussing the heroes of the we have about 15 minutes for this so this will be just probably a start to good. the answer the discussing the heroes of the iliad you said that we ought to be hectors in some places and ajaxes in others however i'm concerned that if you start pulling the best qualities from everyone around you then there's no real you left you are merely a walking program of the people around you i'm interested in what y'all have to say about this um i think that is um that is a helpful distinction to draw out um and i think that i uh, and probably like oversimplifying it to say, we'll take the best part of Ajax, take the best part of Hector, take the best part of Achilles and then be that person. I think it's significant that even in the story, those are different people uh, in the story. They each, if you were to just say, I want to be Hector, you would have certain flaws as a part of that. Again, Hector loses the combat at the end. Like, um, yeah. Uh, if you were to only be Ajax, you would be, there would be certain weaknesses as a part of you, but we have those weaknesses. And so it is fair to acknowledge that to set one person as your hero is to say that you prioritize certain attributes over others. That's one statement. Second statement is that um, I always feel like I need to distinguish between personality and virtue. And so any example of virtue is an example for all of us to follow those virtues. We like, we should all desire to be virtuous, but there are personality differences between Hector, Ajax, Achilles, name your person, Queen Arete, like name your person. There are personality differences between them, and we're not supposed to emulate all of those. We are going to be different on personality, but we should be similar on virtue. So those are just two first thoughts I had with that. So my, so my finishing thought, I, I said that there was you know nothing new under the sun and yeah. everyone. So, uh, let me qualify that a little bit. I think everyone is, to a certain degree, a walking program of the people around them, right? You will have drawn ideas and notions and tendencies from your parents. I can't tell you how many times I've met a kid and then met their parents and said, yeah, that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you will draw part of your sense of humor from the things going on around you. I would say that a good chunk of my generation was influenced specifically by the movie Dumb and Dumber, whereas this generation is probably more influenced by memes. <laughs> Tell That's me true. I'm wrong. You're not Pull wrong. over. Yeah. It's a cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so to an extent, we are... Pulling pets, from... Pets are falling off. <laughs> How do you know I had gas? Uh, <laughs> so to an extent, we're pulling from all those things around us. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all we are is a pastiche. It means that good all those word. things... Well done. Thank Isn't you. Good? Yeah. All those things come together to make us something new, right? Adding different elements to make a compound, right? You are perhaps a unique combination. But the things that have gone into that combination are not unique, right? You're a combination of nature and nurture. And nurture is a big piece of personality and virtue, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Nature will be kind of its own original thing because DNA is original, but everybody's a human. Everybody tends towards the same sins. You haven't invented a new one, just as you probably have not invented a new virtue, right? Your personality might be different than anybody else's, but you're going to find people like you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that being tied to having a completely original personality is something we should seek or even worry about. I'm not going to worry about losing my personality. What I'm going to worry about is choosing the best pieces of the people around me and trying to emulate those because that is how I become yeah. the best. I, I, agree, I agree with that. But the uh, I've only brought the Enneagram up once on this podcast, so I feel like I'm doing well for myself. I think, <laughs> I think there is something to be said for like, we, the three of us should have different heroes because our, like the best Graham, the best AJ, the best Thomas will look different from the best of sure. like my best will look different than Graham's best will look different than AJ's best. Of course. The number three would say that <laughs> number five, but oh, you were sorry. close. Okay. So, um, and so th- th- that's the other piece that I hope that I drew out in the episode. And if I didn't, I'll just restate it here that again, those moral attributes we need anything that's moral is not an individual difference. We should be moral. We should follow virtue, but we should find heroes that are akin to us in that personality to show us what, like the better Thomas looks like. Um, yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. if, if I think about the differences between us, I know that Mr. Donaldson over here is particularly more about the questions that are a little further off the ground than I am. Right? Mm-hmm. He likes to think about where we are headed as an organization, what it means to be in this modern world. And typically... I, I like to concern myself with things that are a little closer to the ground, right? But that's not a moral difference. But that's not a, that's not a moral difference. Right. It's just s- simply a difference in tendency. Yes. Yeah. If I tackled the question that the listener put in, I get the sense that authenticity ends up. So th- what I hear, or my interpretation of the question is, is oh my goodness, if I start trying to emulate all of these other people, I'm going to lose myself in the process. Therefore, I need to be just true to myself and. I, I guess the implication is not let other people affect me so deeply or whatever. Um, my, re- underst- my, my gut reaction is that if you try to be authentic, auth- real authenticity and real individuality of character comes not from seeking that out as an end. It's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And if you try to seek that out as an end, you actually end up being as boring and bland as everybody else who is self-focused. Um, and if you sort of not care about yourself or if you don't really think about how you as a person are developing you are going after and trying to emulate heroes i actually think you end up being quite unique and and, and interesting um it's kind of similar to what c.s lewis says i I pulled it up you want me to read it the quote about saints uh no it's about being original 
Uh, I was thinking like when C.S. Lewis talks about I, I can get a Lewis quote too. Wait, hold on. Oh, oh. When, when Lewis talks about saints, he says like um, the tyrants of the world are, are unique or the tyrants of the world are all like the same. But those who are saints, those who've thought about God and have tried to emulate the perfection of God end up being completely diverse mm-hmm. and being uh, um, sort of um, their own individual person. So it's kind of that weird dichotomy of if you want to find yourself, you need to die. Mm-hmm. You need to let you, you need to le- lose yourself. Can I read it? Go I think it. I have the quote yeah. you're talking about. This is from Mere Christianity. Uh, but there must be a real, real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed, indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. Yeah. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come along as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Mm Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence about how often it has been told before, you will nine times out of ten become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of, your, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Yep. I think that's the same sentiment. I mean, when you're trying to emulate heroes, it's, it's, it's a, um, the same mechanism, the same sort of like pre-Christian mechanism that we now do as Christians of emulating Christ. So, so, so the concern, uh, being, so the concern is that there's no real you left, but in a way that like, that's the goal. Yeah. The goal is to have less of that. He must increase. I must decrease. Yeah. I like that. So I don't have anything else pithy to say on that one. Cool. Well, yeah. I don't feel like I should try to follow C.S. Yeah, Lewis. No, that's good. Uh, he, it's always a good way. He to... puts it pretty well. I know I my mouth does drip gold. It does. Always. I, mean, I set a cup underneath AJ's yeah. mouth just because I need to, I got bills to pay. Um, <laughs> Sounds miserable. Wouldn't it be the worst? <laughs> <laughs> this has been, we'll end with that one. This has been yeah. Classical Stuff You Should Know with Graham, Thomas, and AJ. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can tweet at us at School Stuff uh, on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I know we should probably like uh, manifest destiny, the classical stuff at classical stuff, but we haven't. We're yet. working on it. We're working on it. Um, and uh, you, what else? It's oh, almost 100 at, episodes, boys. We're at classicalstuff.net. We are trucking up to episode 100. We have no ideas as to what to do if we should celebrate episode 100. Uh, if you have ideas, email us or quote towards us. <laughs> uh-huh. Um and we hope that you're enjoying a beautiful summer. I'm pushing for an evening wear section. Oh, right? we've oh, been doing good. Nice. Wow. I think okay. we should do an evening wear. That sounds good. Part. Yeah. yeah, a talent show. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, let's do that. Woof. All right. Anyway, 
God, if you had all the power, what yeah. would you do with it? Oh my God, we world was, peace. This is good. We, we, I like this. This is a good plan. Okay, a beauty sorry. pageant. Yeah, we're gonna do a pageant. All People right. don't. We're gonna do a beauty this. pageant with, over an audio media. I, oh. This is a wonderful idea. I have been told I have a face for radio. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wonderful. I feel like I've been doing a beauty pageant every recording, and it's just not going appreciated. Yeah. So sorry about that. All right, this is uh, classical stuff. Signing off. Thanks for listening. Signing off. Bye. 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 Bye.